I'm Stephen Wright, and you're listening to the final episode of Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series from Mail Plus. Episode 7, Forgeries and Fake News. Diana, Princess of Wales, died in a tragic car crash in 1997. But it took until 2008, more than 10 years later, for an inquest to determine the cause of her death. In that time, an industry emerged of journalists and commentators peddling conspiracy theories about her death. Although the inquest systematically discredited these theories, as we've covered in detail in previous episodes, many still believe Diana's death was not an accident and that the inquest was just another part of an establishment cover-up. To this day, there are many people who don't believe or accept the verdict of unlawful killing. I just think that the whole thing was a conspiracy. It was never an accident. Like, the whole lot was planned. She was just too good for them and had to get rid of her. Shocking allegations about Princess Diana's death. Authorities now reviewing the new and sensational claim that she was actually murdered by the British government. We think that uh, the whole thing was perverse and it demonstrates once again the cover-up that has gone on. Lord Stevens, we all accept it was an unprecedented case which was really challenging for a lot of the authorities, both here and in France. But it still begs the question, should it have taken more than 10 years? Should that inquest have taken so long and arguably allow conspiracy theories to flourish as they did? Well, it was always going to take a fair period of time because the French judicial authorities had to do their job as they thought fit. You remember they had their own inquiry on what took place in the Alma underpass that night. And all of that takes time. And then, of course, you know, if, in fact, you've got to bring all this stuff back and there's a criminal inquiry which we conducted, all these things take time. I think at the end of the day, yes, it should have been done quicker. Yes, if it was in more ideal circumstances, that would be a good thing. But that wasn't the case. And that's what happens with a lot of these cases. And I just wanted to ask you a bit more about some of the journalists and sections of the media who were fueling the conspiracy theories about Diana's death before Operation Padgett and during it. I just wonder what your view is now, looking back on the damage those journalists caused Uh, the doubts they raised, and also misinforming the public. How do you assess that, Lord Stevens? Well, again, the nature of these things, something such such high profile, world attention on it in in a way that hadn't happened, I don't think it was unique. Uh, And, of course, the sympathy for her death, there's bound to be people around who take advantage of that. My view is that, you know, that's for us, being a, a policeman, you have to take that type of thing and you have to deal with it. These people have to answer to their own conscience. That's what I would be saying. You know, they have to look at themselves and think, did they do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons? But you and your colleagues were aware that there were, I think it's fair to say, rogue journalists who were pumping out fake news. Of course there were, and there still are in relation to other things. And, uh, you know, some people around who will manipulate these journalists, will pay them, will give them false stories, fake news as we call it now, 
and and that's just that's just life and you've got to deal with that certainly in relation to policing and uh, as i said you know some of some of these people just need to look at themselves in the face and think why did we do that was that right thing to do bearing in mind the hurts the massive hurt that some of these stories created I mean, there are still books being written and websites saying that Diana had been murdered. I mean, does that annoy you or do you just dismiss it as people who are not worth being worried about? I dismiss it, to be honest, and you're always going to find that because if we're being really, really truthful about this, there's money for these people in it. There's money for these people to be controversial and to come up with some conspiracy. There's one journalist in particular that Lord Stevens has told me his investigation had heard rumours about back in 2008 and that more recent events have shone new light on. At the end of last year, Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, published a bank statement he claimed had been given to him by Martin Bashir. The Earl said the bank statement was used to convince him that one of his own team was leaking information to the press about his sister. Earl Spencer also claimed that this statement formed part of a campaign to win his and his sister's trust, which ultimately culminated in the now infamous interview Bashir did with the princess in 1995. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. When this news broke, Lord Stevens was reminded of some information his team acquired during their investigations for Operation Paget. Lord Stevens, you had heard some information about the letter Diana had written to Paul Burrell, her butler, in which she said she feared the brakes on her car would be tampered with. Can you explain what that was? Yes, it's regarding October 1995 when Diana left a note for Paul Barrow in his pantry at Kensington Palace. The interesting part of this is it was not, it was kept by Barrow and not made known to anyone until the Daily Mirror published this in October 2003. On the 31st of October, 1995, Princess Diana went to see Lord Mishkin, who was a personal legal advisor, along with uh, Mr. Jepson, who was her private secretary. And she told Lord Mishkin that she had from reliable sources been informed that efforts would be made to get rid of her and Camilla. In fact, they were going to be put aside, both of them, so that Prince Charles could marry Tiggy. Tiggy Legbork, of course, being the nanny to Prince William and Harry at the time. Did Diana say who the source was? She wouldn't tell Lord Mishkan who the reliable sources were. Now, November 1995, which was the Bashir interview, presumably Bashir would have been in communication with Diana in October 1995, leading up to the November interview directly or possibly through Lord Spencer. Now, we, we could never find any critical incident or event that led Princess Diana to be so paranoid at this time in 1995. So... The pageant, we just presumed that it was something she had imagined in her darker hours. And we did have witness statements saying she was sometimes just likely to have wild thoughts. And that may well have been part of it. But I think my question, and I know the pageant team question would be, and we've discussed this, 
was he aware of how fragile she was in the months leading to this interview? Or did he say something to her through Lord Spencer or otherwise that actually fed that paranoia? And were you able to establish if there was any link between Diana's fears, which she expressed in that letter to Paul Burrell and Martin Bashir? Well, we don't know, to be frank, because until very recently, we didn't know that Bashir had alleged forged documents, which he'd used to convince her that people were out to get her. And we just thought that his interview with her was a straightforward interview, giving her side of the marriage to Prince Charles. It may well be that Bashir stumbled across her at a vulnerable time in her life, or he may have exacerbated her mental state, or he may have generated that paranoia. For us, it made no difference to Paget, apart from having to interview Prince Charles, as he was named in the note, because we determined from all the other witnesses that her fears were unfounded. And when you talk about those witnesses, and obviously you'd have access to documents, so there was nothing to back up um, her fears in terms of what people told you and your officers, uh, your team, and also in, in the documentary evidence that there was genuinely, you know, you know, that she should have security fears or that there were, there were dangers for her. That's absolutely right. And, of course, uh, during the course of the inquest uh, led by Lord Justice Scott Baker, None of that came out, and in fact, it just verified what we'd done, we had done, and what we came across in terms of our evidence. And that, you know, these witnesses were cross-examined quite vigorously by very capable lawyers. So I'd imagine you've been very surprised to hear about the emerging allegations against Martin Bashir and his role in potentially, allegedly, fueling her paranoia about her security situation. Yes, I think we all have, and having discussed it with the Paget team, we are. Uh, alarmed by it, because if he used fraudulent documents which affected her state of mind at the time, that's a very serious issue. And there's another piece to the puzzle, isn't there? As we've discussed earlier, one of the many, many statements your team took during Operation Paget was one from Dr Hasnett Khan, Diana's former lover. In that statement, there's a reference to the princess having a mole who was codenamed, it seemed, Dr Jarman. Hasnick Khan said that Dr Jarman, back in 95, when all this was happening, had made Diana very concerned about her security team. Now, crucially, Dr Khan surmised, rightly or wrongly, that Dr Jarman may have actually been Martin Bashir. My question is, were you and your officers able to establish who Dr Jarman was? Was it indeed Martin Bashir? And no, we weren't, but uh, you're right that uh, certainly uh, Hasnick Khan, Dr Hasnick Khan, surmised it might have been uh, Bashir, but we never were able to establish whether that was a fact or not. Nevertheless, something happened in 1995 which made Diana very worried about her security. And those fears, it could be argued, had tragic consequences because the princess had already disposed with her own Scotland Yard security detail but this may well have added to her distrust of police bodyguards. And as you yourself have said, had Scotland Yard officers been with her on the night of the crash in Paris in 97, they would never have let her get into that car with Henri Paul. Well, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely right, because uh, we know, and everyone who's looked at that issue, including ourselves, has said it, had she gotten 
Scotland Yard protection, that it wouldn't have taken place in the way it did. She'd still be alive. However, the question in relation to her security was it was removed in December 1993. Uh, and I think Barrell says, and one or two other people say, they think it's because she thought the officers who were protecting her were informing Prince Charles of her movements, which uh, I'm pretty sure is not the case. So the question around her security, her, her personal security is very, very important. Whether she'd have taken back uh, the offer of uh, close protection from the Metropolitan Police, I don't know. Obviously, Martin Bashir has been headline news over the last few months and will continue to be as a result of the scathing BBC inquiry into his conduct. But on reflection, do you regret not interviewing him during Padgett? Or is that question really with the benefit of hindsight? You know, this has only come out recently, which is unfortunate. If we'd have known at the time of Paget, we would certainly have gone and seen him and interviewed him. And it would have been part and parcel of the inquiry to get to the bottom of it. As we've said throughout this series, there are still and possibly always will be those who refuse to believe that Diana's death was the result of a tragic accident. Some in the media have criticised the cost of the inquiry, arguing it was a waste of public funds to try to disprove conspiracy theories. The cost of Operation Paget exceeded £12.5 million, whilst the coroner's inquest cost £4.5 million. Lord Stevens, there's no denying that it was a lot of money, but do you think, plain devil's advocate here, that it was money well spent? Because it had gone on for so long, hadn't it? The real issue with this is people who were the victims and the relative of the victims. If they could have some closure, some sort of closure to what took place that that night, that tragic night, horrendous circumstances, then we will have done a good job and all of that money will have been well spent. That's one issue. The other issue is for the public interest as to what took place. There were massively damaging allegations made about the security services and about the royal family. Now, if we put lay to some of those and got to the truth of those, it is money well spent. No doubt about it. But I'd first of all go to the victims and their relatives. If we've given them some closure to this, and we've done a really good job. Dr Dick Shepherd agrees. I don't know what the inquiry cost, and that's, a, in a sense, is a, a political decision as to whether or not to hold them. But, I mean, I think it is important for the state to say, we have heard your concerns, we have done our best to look at them in a fair and open and complete manner, and we have considered all the possibilities that you have put forward and we can find no evidence to support it. So I think the open analysis, discussion and consideration of the facts is really important. Conspiracy theories, I've been involved in a number of cases throughout my career that just won't go away. Whatever you do, you realise that people are not going to accept that the death was as mundane as you have said that it was, because they can't believe that that would be the case. So Diana is not unique in that sense of a case that won't go away. Those that view the inquiry as a waste of money point to the fact that Mohammed al-Fayed played such a central role in its conception, 
from his vocal accusations against the royal family to his endorsement of Lord Stevens as the inquiry head. Yet despite this, he's never fully accepted its conclusions. Michael Cole no longer works for Mohammed Al-Fayed, but they remain close. There are some Michael who claim that Mr Al-Fayed's accusations against the royal family was an attempt to deflect criticism about what happened from the failings of his own security team, that he is claiming there was a conspiracy because he feels guilty that his own son and Diana died whilst essentially under his protection. Obviously, he's not on this podcast to defend himself. He declined to be interviewed. And though I know you don't work for him anymore, you do know him very well. So I wanted to put it to you. Do you think there's any truth in that? Mohammed al to know the full facts about the way in which his eldest son, Dodi, and a dear family friend, Diana, Princess of Wales, came about their deaths. That's been his only motive throughout. Nothing else has been on his mind at all. And he still believes that further information will come forward perhaps as people approach the end of their lives, perhaps when they feel they want to make a clean breast of things, he believes that more information will come and he hopes that is comes about while he's alive or if not for the sake of his family thereafter. That has been his only motive. That has been his only thought and consideration. And I know that that's what goes through his mind. Just to be absolutely clear, is it... You know, his opinion, as far as you know, that his son and Princess Diana were murdered in Paris. Mohammed continues to hold to the belief that his son, Dodi, his eldest son, and Diana, Princess of Wales, a great friend of the family, were murdered in Paris. He still hopes to this very day that new information will emerge in time that will demonstrate the truth of his belief. Of course, Diana would have been 60 in July this year had she survived the crash. And next year, it will be a quarter of a century since the accident. So that's another landmark anniversary coming up, which will result in more scrutiny, Michael. That's inevitable. And maybe by the time we get to the 25th anniversary of this terrible tragedy, we will be better informed. Little bits of information come out from time to time, uh, some of them more relevant than others, but the picture is not complete. It's a mosaic missing a lot of pieces. And I believe in due course, uh, we will have a much, much better picture. When Diana died, the internet was very much in its infancy, and yet the rumors and conspiracies still took hold and have only spread with the growth of the web. It's quite possible that the hardcore conspiracy theorists, like many duped by fake news, will never be swayed, no matter how much evidence is presented to the contrary. On reflection, Lord Stevens, would you have done anything differently on Paget if you had to do it again? Do you think you could ever convince everyone that Diana's death was an accident? No, I don't think we would. Um... Uh, I think we, we dealt with everything meticulously. We dealt with every single allegation as if it was a separate allegation. 
I had the best team that I could possibly get working with me and for me. Um, and, you know, once you've got good people surrounding you, you know you're going to get a success. And you've got to be very, very, very sure of the people you work with because these sensitive uh, inquiries can be blown apart by someone who's either corrupt or is not acting in a way that's following the rules. Despite all the noise around Diana's death, it's important to remember that she was only 36 years old when she died, in the prime of her life. She left behind two sons and a loving family, as well as the millions of admirers around the world who mourned her passing. In July this year, she would have turned 60, a milestone birthday in most people's lives, but one she'd never reach. It's hard to imagine her now as a grandmother of five children. So to round off this series, I asked the people we've spoken to, including those who knew her personally, what they think she would have been like now had she still been alive. I think she would have been a very glamorous grandmother and probably a very loving and hands-on grandmother. I think that would have made her enormously happy. Would she have found somebody to love and maintain that relationship long-term? I don't know. I would like to think she could have done. But I know that even if she'd been on her own, she would have adored her grandchildren. I'm sure of that. I mean, not a year has gone by when Diana is not being remembered in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. But it is remarkable to me that here we are 24 years on from her death and yet she still dominates the news in quite the way she did. Now, a lot of that is to do with the fact that she died a violent, sudden death unexpectedly. The fact that she was at the height of her beauty and in, in many ways the height of her height of her power. What would Diana have been like as a grandmother? She would have been a grandmother by the time she hit 60. She would have had five grandchildren. It's hard to think of that glamorous woman in her mid-30s as a granny, but a granny she would have been. What kind of figure she would have been on the fringes of the royal family? You know, I, I feel that had Diana not been killed that night, I think she would have remained a formidable figure in British life for the years ahead. I think she would have met someone really nice. Uh, Mr. Calm had been on the scene for a long while and, and that may have come off and may not. But I think she would have been living in the country with the children and the grandchildren around her. I really think because that last year in, in the princess's life was a fantastic year. I thought it was a fantastic year and I think other people who were close friends thought as well. And I think she would have gone on and matured and matured. There wouldn't have been this rushing around and doing things. I think she would have found a level and she would have been worshipped by this country. You've been listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series for Male Plus, with me, Stephen Wright. With thanks to Lord Stevens, Di Davies, Colin Tebbett, Dr Dick Shepherd, Richard Kay, Michael Cole, Penny Juner, Dr Frederick Maillet, Dr Monsal Darman and Father Yves-Marie Clochard-Bosset.
Additional thanks to my colleagues Richard Pendlebury, Rory Warholland, Simon Trump, Sue Connolly and Jamie Wiseman for their work on the print version of this story. This series was produced by Rosie Gillett. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider visiting mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more.